my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor uh, here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, joining us in, in worship. Uh, a couple of quick things before we dive into our time, uh, but, but, but to begin, uh, we're going to find ourselves, if you want to open or load your Bible, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you turn there, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Number one, if you're new, again, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, we, we are so grateful that you, you are worshiping alongside of us today. Uh, fill out one of the Connect cards. They should be on the chairs uh, before you. And fill one out, drop it in the offering basket, or leave it in the back Connect desk, and someone will get back with you within 24 hours. Uh, that's how much we want to hang out with you. And then uh, number two, if you don't have a Bible, also in the rows before you are several Bibles. That is our gift to you. Please take one. Uh, if you know someone who could benefit from having one, again, please take one and bless them in that way. And if you don't see any in the rows before you, there are some in the Back Connect area. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Uh, we tend to go uh, verse by verse here at Storehouse Community Church. So, so we love the Word of God. We love Jesus. Uh, we love to preach uh, ultimately His finished work on the cross, but because uh, we believe that that is uh, the most ultimate thing to, to preach and why we gather. So with that being said, um, I think those are all the announcements, or not announcements, things that I, I kind of wanted to share. Let me just double check. Uh, oh, if you're a member, uh, you'll see this on the video later on today, but if you're a member or you call Storehouse Community uh, home, we're going to be having a family gathering afterward at the Old Church Winery. This will be uh, after service, uh, and I think that's all I have. All right, you guys ready? Okay, three people, cool. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just keep going. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, uh, and I normally start off by reading scripture and I, and I, and I still want to do that. I'm certainly not ignoring that. Uh, but I do want to give you kind of a recap in particular, if you're new or you're just joining us, I want to give you kind of a recap of, of what's been going on, why we're doing this series in first Peter. And, and over the past couple of weeks, uh, we have spent a considerable amount of time, uh, working and walking through, uh, the work that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. If you read through the first, oh, 12 verses of the first chapter of Peter, Peter spends, the apostle Peter, that is, he, he spends a considerable amount of time just walking us through the work of God in Christ for us. And that is incredibly important for the believer. That is incredibly important for the skeptic. And the reason that's so important is because it gives us this general outline of the significance and priority of the gospel of Jesus. That is that the message of the gospel is that Jesus or that God has accomplished his saving work through Jesus on the cross. And as a result, he reconciles man to God, that Jesus saves sinners, Additionally, what that then means is that as a result of what God has done for us, what we do comes next. Our obedience comes as a result of our identity. 
This is incredibly important because in particular, the American church or the American gospel, however you'd like to phrase that, oftentimes confuses this message of salvation, this message of the gospel, and will teach and preach that you need to obey if you are going to be loved by God that you need to obey if you ultimately want to be kept by God, that if you uh, disobey when you drop the ball, that ultimately God at some point is going to press the eject button. And so there is this message of fear that comes with that. Yet what Peter teaches us in the first 12 verses of the first chapter of the epistle of Peter is actually God has done everything for you through Christ. That because we are sinners, God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, lived in your place, died the death that you deserve, and ultimately gives freely the grace that you and I cannot earn. Elsewhere, Peter says, he refers to us as obedient children. Now, why that phrase is so important is because it tells us who we first are, that we are children of God as a result of what Jesus has done. Therefore, we obey. Said it in another way, we do not obey so that God would love us. We obey because God does love us. Those are two different things. And so those first 12 verses, that's where, that's where Peter takes us. He is uh, reminding us of what God has done for us. Everything else that we are now walking through is a result of what God has done for us in Christ. And so in verse 13, this is a large recap. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter's language changes. His language changes. He, his language changes from this is what God has done for you, or as a result of what God has done for you, this is what you now do. As a result of who you are in Christ, this is now what you do. And he presented us with this language, this pursuit of holiness. And we spent about two weeks just talking about what holiness, excuse me, what holiness is, what holiness isn't, the means of holiness, and the motivation behind holiness. And so we spent about two weeks because Peter is very specific about how you and I are to pursue holiness, and it begins with our mind. He says in verse 13 of the first chapter, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Summed up, Peter is saying, as a result of who God says you are, get your mind ready. Roll up your sleeves. Get ready to work. The King James Version says, uh, gird up the loin of your uh, minds. In other words, be ready to work. As a result of what God has done for you and is doing in you and will do through you, get ready to work. And so many of you are very practical minded. Well, just tell me what to do. And Peter tells us what to do. He says, you are to pursue holiness as a result of who you are in Christ. 
And so again, we talked about holiness, and and one of the things that Peter does as we are now moving forward is he sets up who we are in Christ, he sets up what holiness is, and now he is setting us up for what holiness looks like in every sphere of our lives. He will eventually talk to us about what it looks like to pursue holiness in a context where maybe the majority don't uh, know who Jesus is. Maybe you're at work and you're the only Christian. Maybe we're in a city where, actually we are in a city where less than 10% of the population knows who Jesus is. Peter will get us ready for that. This is how you are to pursue holiness in this context. He will say, this is how you are to pursue holiness in the context of governing authority. He will say, this is how you are ought to pursue holiness uh, in the context of marriage for wives and for husbands. He gives us a variety of, of social spheres, but he begins with the pursuit of holiness toward one another in the church. And that is where we've been for the past two weeks. This week being three. He's not done. See, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, Peter uh, giving us this charge of loving one another. And, and he set the tone when he talked about, or when, as he begins to talk about the pursuit of holiness when it comes to one another in the church. He says, love one another. In other words, don't just recognize that you are a brother or a sister in Christ and that you have a friendship. But the love that I am talking about is a love that pours out from what God has done in you. And so what does that mean practically? It means that I lay down my rights in order to love you well and vice versa. Last week we looked at the hunger uh, or our hunger for the word of God. That if we have tasted that the Lord is good, we ought to hunger for the word of God. As we hunger for the word of God, we actually press into sins that come to surface in our life so that we would repent of them with the truth and, and combat them, I should say, repent of them and combat them with the truth about who God God is and what God has done, and we learn that through his word. Additionally, we lean and press and hunger into the word of God so that we would love God more, so that our, 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 our relationship with God would increase, so that our love for God would increase, and at the same time, we would grow to hate our sin. You cannot say, I'm learning to love God more, yet indulging freely in your sin. It doesn't make sense. And today, Peter continues by addressing the church. There's, there's, that's a recap. That was kind of the introduction. All right. Today, Peter is ultimately going to teach us that loving one another and hungering for the word of God, it's not for nothing. It's not just practical tips. It's just not the Christianese language that I want to use. Peter is ultimately saying this is for something. All of this boils to what we're talking about today, and that is that Jesus is building his church. 
That is what Peter is ultimately getting at in this section of scripture today, that Jesus is building his church. So here's what I want you to chew on uh, as I preach or even throughout the week. Here's what I want you to chew on. What you believe about the church begins with what you believe about Jesus. I'll say it one more time. What you believe about the church begins with what you believe about Jesus. If I asked you the question, what is the church? We would probably get a variety of answers. We would get some uh, sociological answers. We might even get some institutional answers. Uh, We might even get nerdy and geeky and even give some theological answers. A church is a place where the word of God is preached, where the ordinances are administered and where confession and sin take place. The church is a building that has really cool, uh, you know, glass, stained glass. The church is a people that agree on some core beliefs. Those are common answers to what is the church, but even in those common answers, they fail to answer who the church is about. They fail to answer who is at the head of the church. Last night, I was thinking about this. Last night, my wife and I were watching this show called uh, 30 Rock. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. I love 30 Rock. It is hilarious. Anyway, in this one episode, uh, one of the main characters, Tracy, Tracy Jordan, is, uh, uh, he, he is approaching his coworkers. He's approaching all of his coworkers and he's asking them, what religion do you believe in? Where do you worship? Uh, because he believes that uh, 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 as a celebrity, he ought to align with a religion and it would look better on him as a celebrity. And so he's asking everybody, where do you worship? What church do you go to? And one of the other main characters played by Alec Baldwin, his name is Jack Donaghy in the show, uh, his, his brother, Eddie Donaghy, sits down with him and he proceeds to tell him about the religion he is a part of. And he goes on to say, you can do whatever it is you want and as long as you confess, you're good. And so Tracy Jordan goes on to say, oh man, I want to be a part of that. I, I love that. I can still do my thing. And as long as I do this one thing over here, I'm good. Now, in that entire uh, dialogue or this entire scene that we see in 30 Rock, at no point, granted it's a show, but at no point do we ever hear the name of God presented. What we end up hearing about are all the benefits or all of the things that can happen in a church or one of the things that you can do. Or if you don't do these things, then you're considered good. And if you do these things, then God won't love you. Right? Right? That's ultimately what what they were getting at. And so if you will, turn to Colossians 1.18. And actually, you don't have to go there, but but it is just the, the first part of Colossians. This is what the Apostle Paul says in this, uh, the first half of verse 18. He says, and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Our identity is founded upon who Jesus is. Our identity is founded upon who Jesus is. So with that being said, let's read, or let me read where we're going to be headed to today, and then I'll pray. 
This is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, uh, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Let's pray. God, as we, um, as we walk into this time of, of, man, of worship through your preached word, Lord, I would, I would just submit and ask a couple of things. God, number one, I would ask that I would be set aside. And that it would be you, Holy Spirit, who not only works through me, but ultimately is speaking. God, I pray that um, the things that we walk through today, um, that it wouldn't just land on ears, but that it would land inevitably on hearts. That hearts would be convicted for the sake of repentance and worship. That hearts would be regenerated for the sake of repentance, and worship. God, we thank you for this time where we get to gather and worship by singing and listening to the preach word and praying. We thank you for this opportunity. May you be glorified in this time. May your name be glorified and may Jesus be made much of. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen. Normally, I have a lot of uh, uh, cross-references. We're not going to look at that many today, primarily because the Apostle Peter is actually drawing from the Old Testament in this section. He's pulling back and going from the Old Testament and bringing it in to ultimately make his case, make his argument. And, uh, and, and what we're going to see is a metaphor, imagery for stones and, and houses and things being built. And, and I want you to know that this isn't actually something that Peter just thought of and, hey, this would be really good. He's actually drawing from Old Testament imagery. Uh, this, this imagery actually begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can take a look at it later, but it's essentially where King David is saying, man, I'm going to build a house for God. And then God turns it on him and says, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a dynasty. And so we'll talk more about that in a little bit. One of the things that I'm also going to do is that as I walk through this, it's going to be a little repetitive because I want to go back to several words and several sections in this text. But the first thing that I want you to know is that, man, in this text, uh, Peter addresses Jesus as several things. He addresses him as the cornerstone. He addresses him as the living stone. And he addresses him as a stumbling stone or a, or a stone of offense. And so we're going we're gonna to start with the cornerstone. 
And so let me reread this section. Uh, I don't have the verse numbers on my notes, but we're going to end where he is ultimately uh, quoting Isaiah. But so this is what he says, beginning of verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built as a spiritual house. We're going to talk about that in a moment to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Here's where we're going to park. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes, I want you to underline that, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The first thing I want you to know, and I mentioned this already, the first thing I want you to know is that Peter addresses Jesus as the cornerstone. What does that mean? It means that the church is built upon him. Jesus as the cornerstone means that the church is built upon him. You see, a cornerstone was the first stone that was laid in the construction of a building, and it was foundational. It was a foundational piece of support for all the other walls being built upon it. Uh, You may have heard the expression of the phrase, you're only as strong as the foundation upon which you stand. The cornerstone is a foundational piece. Everything else is going to bank off of the foundation of the cornerstone. And what what Peter is telling us is that Jesus is the foundation for our spiritual house. Well, what's our spiritual house? The spiritual house are God's people. The spiritual house are God's people. And God dwells with his people through the Holy Spirit. And so again, all of this that we're going to walk through is metaphor and imagery using stones and construction and stuff like that. But ultimately what Peter is saying is Jesus is the foundation of our faith. The house that is going to be built on that foundation is the church. The church consists of the people of God. Additionally, elsewhere in Scripture, we see that God dwells with his people. That is, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Now, as the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus as Lord, this is made possible through belief. I told you to underline that word a while ago, right? Uh, Let me reread it one more time. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Belief does not only, it does, but it does not only include coming under the authority of. Belief also means that we build our identity off of that. And if Jesus is our foundation, then we build our identity individually and corporately off of who Jesus is. Off of who Jesus is. You can't say that Jesus is your foundation and then build your identity off of your career or your family or your marriage. You can't say that Jesus is your foundation and then inevitably build your identity off of things like anger or bitterness. The Bible refers to that as idolatry. 
Jesus is not a genie. He is not a bobblehead. He is not an eight ball. He is not a mythical thing or being. Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Redeemer. And so it would be very inconsistent of us to say that Jesus is our foundation, but we build our identity off of something else. You cannot serve two masters. Who Jesus is determines who we are. Who Jesus is determines who we are. So come to him. That's, that's the beginning of verse four. He says, as you come to him. As you come to him is a way of saying that it's a process. It is a process. You see, for some of you, if you look back at, at uh, your walk with the Lord, maybe you coming to him was something that was immediate and radical. That from one day to the next, people obviously saw a change. From one week to the next, there was something different. For some of you, it's been gradual. It's been a progress. It's been a little bit slower, and that's okay. The encouragement there is keep coming to him. Keep coming to him. Keep coming to him. I think oftentimes that isn't so much or or knowing or feeling like your walk is slow oftentimes leaves some Christians discouraged. I'm not growing. Maybe I am immature. Maybe God's already forgotten about me. Maybe God doesn't love me. Here, Peter is saying, as you come to him, it is a process. Keep coming to him. Keep coming to him. Keep coming to him. That is Jesus's invitation. Come to me. Come to me. He is beckoning you. Come to me. Come to me. Don't stop. That would, that would be my, my, my theological answer for you. Don't stop. Keep coming to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, that is his invitation to you. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. I'll I'll talk more about this later, but coming to Jesus means a couple of things. Uh, It means, number one, that you are putting uh, your uh, self-desires to death uh, in order to follow, serve, and love Jesus. Coming to him is... Also a process, as I mentioned earlier. So come to him. Jesus as the cornerstone means that the church is built upon him. He is the foundation. The spiritual house that is being built is the church. Now there are implications for that, and Peter tells us about that. So let's look at the next thing. The next thing that Peter refers to Jesus as is the living stone. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the living stone? It means that the church, and we're going to park here, the church is connected through him. The church is connected through him. The metaphor and imagery that Peter is using with stones, uh, in particular the living stone, what he is saying is that Jesus as the living stone, what that means is there's, there's nothing natural or alive about a stone. Again, this is just a metaphor. There's nothing uh, alive about a stone, but he refers to Jesus as the living stone to suggest or to tell us Jesus is alive. 
When Jesus went to the cross, not only did he absorb and bear our sin, he also satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. As a result, Jesus dies on the cross and on the third day resurrects, which means he is alive which means more things, that he has conquered sin, that he has conquered uh, Satan, that he has conquered demons, that he has conquered the grave. And as a result, God in Christ makes people alive in him, which is why he refers to him as a living stone. And then he goes on to say, you yourselves like living stones. The church consists of living stones. That is that we have been made alive in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this almost every week. We've talked about the work of regeneration. That apart from God, we are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. And it is an act of God and God alone to resuscitate our dead hearts so that we would have faith and repent turning to him. The church as living stones means that we have been made alive in Christ through the Holy Spirit. As a result, we are not only reconciled to the Father. Reconciled is is relational language. See, when Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins and satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, what he inevitably did for sinners is that he removed the fence of separation that we have with God. Jesus makes it possible for us to have access to the Father. And so as a result of that, not only have we been reconciled to the Father, not only do we have a relationship with the Father, not only do we have access to the Father, but we have been reconciled to one another. We have been reconciled to one another. What does that mean? It means that we are connected to one another through Jesus as a family. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. But the concept of living stones, every time there's a brick being built, every time there's a living stone, you, the church aren't, isn't scattered stones on a field. It's not, man, okay, you're a living stone now, so I'm going to chunk you over there. That doesn't exist. The lone Christian doesn't exist or shouldn't. We are built upon this house, right? That, that is us, which has implications. But, but if you look at it in terms of, oh man, I'm a butcher this. In terms of like construction term, I don't know, dude, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in construction. I don't know this, right? But when you build stuff, the idea of laying bricks on top of one another, James, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, when, you, when you put bricks on top of one another, the idea is that that section gets strengthened, the more bricks that get laid on top of one another and in the design that they get laid on top of one another, it, it grows stronger. The church aren't scattered stones. Stones being built upon one another on the foundation of Christ alone. And so what are the implications of us being connected to one another? Well, I think there might be more, but I want to talk about two implications. The first one is your spiritual health, your spiritual health matters. Your spiritual health matters more than you think because it affects others. Remember, we're all connected. 
That's just like the baseline argument. Your spiritual health matters because it affects others. See, one of the lies that Christians buy into is that in particular when you might be struggling with sin and failing often, one of the things that Christians often are tempted to and many times do believe is that, well, this is a sin that I'm struggling with, but at the very least, it only affects me. At the very least, it only affects me. And that's a lie. Your spiritual health matters because it affects everyone else. And so what you do with it matters. Like, not just now, we've been talking about the church and, and we're going to be talking about all these other social spheres in, in, in the coming weeks. And so, so sometimes I said, oh, this isn't a pitch, but I'm not afraid to say it anymore. Like, you should, you should probably get in community. You or not should, you, you, you ought to be in community with one another because we are connected to one another. And because we are connected to one another, man, we can put all of these things on the table. We can put these things on the table so that we can sort through them, not just with transparency, but without judgment. So that we can pray for one another, so that we can disciple one another, and so that we can confess sin to one another. Accountability is a byproduct of confessing our sin to one another. So that's the first implication. Your spiritual health matters because it affects others. So get in community. Number two, other people's spiritual health matters because it is your responsibility. We're responsible for one another. And so when we talk about spiritual health in that sense, some of you may be in a really good season. Praise God, that's awesome. Some of you may be in a really good season and you may know of a difficult season or just some difficulties that other people are going through. And oftentimes what tends to happen with many Christians is that they will know about difficulties. They will know about difficult, difficult seasons in other people's lives. And there's this spiritual uh, stiff arm. I don't want your negativity to impact my relationship with God. It's like the worst thing you can say. Right? I'll pray for you, just don't call me. And you may not necessarily say it in that language, but it's been something that boils in our hearts and minds. You know? Spiritual health, the spiritual vitality of one another matters. But why does it matter? Not just because we're connected to one another. Why does it matter? Peter tells us, he gives us another two reasons. Let me go back up. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he says, why do, so the, the question is, so why is spiritual health important? Because we are a holy priesthood who offer spiritual sacrifices. See, the priests in the Old Testament uh, represented the people of God in the presence of God. That's why they uh, made animal sacrifices so that not not only would they, uh, excuse me, not only would their sins be forgiven and cleansed, but so that they could actually step in the presence of God. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who stands in our place for our sins and gives us access to God. 
He is the only mediator between us and God. As a result, he has deemed us not only chosen, not only precious in his sight, but he has deemed us priests. I, everybody gets nervous with that. He has deemed us priests. In other words, what he is saying is that when it comes to us being priests, God stands, Jesus stands in our place. There is now no separation. It's not the clergy and then the people. It is priests. Yes, you are a priest. What about the pastors? What about the leaders in the church? Sure, they have roles and responsibilities, and so do the rest of the church. The work of ministry doesn't only mean and single out pastors and leaders in the church. The work of ministry is to be carried out by the church. The work of ministry is to be carried out by Christians. So what does it mean? What does that look like? What is it in our context, not just in McAllen, but in our context as a church, as storehouse, what, is, what does that mean? It means that we offer spiritual sacrifices. That while we might not be taking lambs and goats and all this, there are spiritual sacrifices. The author of Hebrews answers that for us. Here's what he says. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The writer of Hebrews says that sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God are two things. Praise from our lips, and number two, us serving one another, doing good for one another. Now, that's just very, like, simple. Some of us might even buckle up against that and say, fine, well, I'm going to love them, but I'm just not going to like them. Or I'm going to do this just because it says it in Scripture, but I don't like any of what I'm doing. Paul answers that for us, too, in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, so our life is inevitably a spiritual sacrifice. And he goes on to say, do not be conformed. The Christian life is not about conformity, but transformation. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? These writers don't let us get away with anything. That's what it means to offer spiritual sacrifices. See, many of you come uh, here on Sundays, and I'm grateful for you. And, and many times, many times you, you come with the intention of, man, just give me some tools for my belt so that I can leave here and go do them. Uh, you come here on Sunday so that, man, just tell me what to do so that I can finally do it. Uh, you come here on Sunday so that you can feel good uh, about yourself or, or, or just feel good in general. Um, look, tools are just that. They're tools. I don't want you leaving here just better equipped. I want you leaving here worshiping Jesus. That's what I want. That's what I want. Paul in Romans, Peter in, in, in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews, they are pressing into the condition of our hearts, not just the condition and tasks of our hands. Because it puts us all on the same boat. 
it puts us all in the same boat of worship. So Jesus as the living stone means that the church is connected through him. Number three, Peter says that Jesus is a stumbling stone or a stone of offense. Right? Let's reread that real quick. I think it's just the last two verses. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. We'll come to that in just a moment. A stone of offense. What does that mean? Just like the cornerstone means that the church is founded upon Jesus, living stone means that the church is connected through Jesus, and when we look at the stone of offense, it means that the church will be rejected like Jesus. The church will be rejected like Jesus. Because people reject him, that means you will be rejected too. You will be rejected too. But you won't be put to shame. Go back up. I think this is the end of verse six. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who are in Christ, there's a beautiful truth that on the cross, he already bore your shame. He bore your guilty, uh, your, your feelings of guilt. He bore all of that for you. You have no shame. Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Just because you will be rejected as Christ was rejected does not mean that you have to bear shame because Jesus bore that shame for you on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin. Peter says in this, those two verses that that Jesus is either going to be the cornerstone, the foundation of your faith, or he's going to be a stumbling stone that you will inevitably reject him. In a nutshell, Peter is saying, Jesus doesn't get out of your way. There is no third option. At some point, you're going to have to do business with Jesus. He will not get out of your way. He's referencing from Isaiah 8. Isaiah writes that he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You have to do business with Jesus. He will not get out of your way. And so then that begs the question, what does verse 8 mean? Verse 8 says, they stumble because they disobey the word and they, as they were destined to, some of your translations might say, as they were appointed onto. Some people will read this verse and there are many, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Many interpretations. Some people will read this verse and they will say, obviously God predestined some people to disobey. Maybe. Don't have a clear answer. But here's what I have for you. Here's what I have concluded, at the very least, not just from looking at verse 8, but looking at the entire context or the entire uh, statement of Peter's argument. Because as you study the Bible, here would be just a, a quick tip. First rule of interpretation. Context, 
Context, context. Just like uh, real estate, right? Location, location, location. First rule of interpretation, context, context, context. Here's what I can conclude. Number one, Peter gives us a high view of the sovereignty of God. Can't escape that. He gives us a high view of the sovereignty of God, that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will and decree. He's not, he, he doesn't trip out. He's not surprised. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign will and decree. Next thing that, it, that, that we show, or that he shows in this is human responsibility that we're going to be held accountable, that people will be held accountable for their choices made. In fact, listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is Peter. This is what he says, and this doesn't necessarily tie in, but I want to touch on a couple of things. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So he is saying that Jesus coming into human history, dying on the cross, did not happen outside of God's sovereign plan. And he goes on to say, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He puts their responsibility, he puts ownership on their responsibility. So there is this high view of the sovereignty of God and this reality of man's responsibility. And the best thing that I can think of, and not everybody likes it, the best thing that I can think of is that we need to be okay and find comfort in some of this mystery. And that's not a cop-out answer. It's just I don't have the full answer. If you were to ask me, well, which one is it? The sovereignty of God or man's responsibility? I would say yes. That's what I would say. I would say yes. The great preacher uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon says, uh, when uh, confronted or asked about the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, he says, why reconcile two best friends? Number four, here's what I can also deduce and conclude. Repent. Repent. What Peter is saying is that people reject the word, that is the gospel, because they want to. Bottom line, people reject it because they want to. And so if you're here, or as you're here, and you don't know who Jesus is, here's what I would tell you. I would tell you to repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because what the Bible teaches us about the person and work of Jesus is that you and I are actually not born right with God. That we actually need to be born again in order to be right with God. Either Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, or you you will pay for your sins in eternal judgment. So repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. I'm not guaranteeing you a new car. I'm not guaranteeing you money or even a better life or your best life now. I'm not guaranteeing you any of that. The only thing I can guarantee you is a new heart and the church. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing I got. A new heart being declared righteous before a holy God in light of nothing that you did, but all that Christ did for you. That's all I got for you. So, come to him. 
Come to him. That's, that's, that's what Peter is talking about. Come to him. And so let's look at a couple of practical applications. Everybody's really excited now. Okay? Remember, the goal is to think, worship Jesus, not just have another tool in your belt. Here's the three applications that I can draw from these things. That, that Christ is the cornerstone, that the church is founded upon him. Christ has the living stone, that the church is connected through him. Christ has the stumbling stone, that the church will be rejected like him. So what are three, three applications for us as the church then? Number one, everybody's ready, sorry. Okay, number one, be the church. That's not really, it's not really a very academic reason. Be the church. There's a theme again, come to him. When, when God called us to repent, he called us to repent for a lifetime. Come to him. Be faithful. Be present. Your presence is important. Your presence matters. Be rooted in the person and work of Jesus. Be rooted in the word of God. The people of God grow in their relationship with him among the people of God. Be rooted in Christ. Number two, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Number two, love the church. Love the church. Got a couple of things here. Don't try looking for the perfect church. She does not exist. She does not exist. Therefore, love the church in all of her flaws Love the church in all of her scars. Love the church in all of her failings. And you might say it's hard. Yes, it is hard, not just for you, but for everyone. It is hard to love the church sometimes. And so we love the church. Why? Because Jesus died for her. Because the church consists of Jesus's people. Jesus deemed the church not only chosen, but precious. But precious. So as you love one another, speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4. Speak the truth in love. If we don't do this, then we preach something about what we believe about Jesus. If we don't speak the truth in love, we preach something about what we believe about Jesus. I really love this. This is a quote by Tim Keller. This is what he says. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Speak the truth in love. Are you the cynic? Are you the one that, man, constantly discredits the people of God? The one who is bitter toward the people of God? The one who's always thinking, yes, but? Are you the cynic? 
Are you the critic? And it's not that criticism is bad, man. We love constructive criticism. We want to improve. We want to grow. We want to mature. I'm down with all of that. Like we all need that. But, but are you the critic? You always have a reason not to do something. You always have a reason to buck up against the direction that the church is headed. You always have a reason to not apologize. You always have a reason to not discredit and discard your self-righteousness. You always have a reason to not speak the truth in love. And you say things like, I just dropped truth bombs and I'm just real and that's just who I am and that's how I've always been. And if you don't like it, too bad. We miss it when we do that. We miss it when we do that. And if that's you, repent. Man, put it on the table. We just talked about how your spiritual health doesn't just affect you. It affects us. So put it on the table. Love the church and all of her flaws and in all of her scars. Number three, strengthen the church. Strengthen the church. How can we strengthen the church? Pray. Man, pray for the church. Pray for one another. Pray for the leadership. I got the opportunity to teach a little bit yesterday morning with many of our Sunday teams and Sunday leaders. And one of the things I, I, I kind of challenged them on was how do you prepare your mind for Sunday? Is, is Sunday merely just a work day? Is Sunday merely just, man, get it done, get in and get it done, clock in, do all of the things? Or are you preparing yourselves for Sunday by praying for the church, praying for what's going to happen, praying for the people that are coming? Pray for the church. That's one way in which you can strengthen the church. Two, get in community. Get in community so that you would be discipled by one another, so that you would confess sin to one another, so that you would point one another to the person and work of Jesus. Get in community. Number three, give. Not just your time, and we're not going to be awkward about it. We've talked about this before. Like, give your time. Yeah, give your money. Why? Because God calls us to do it so that the gospel would be expanded, so that it would be advanced, and so that it would be a testimony, a tangible demonstration of what God has done in us. So give. Number four, serve. How you ask, well, I'm glad. Thank you. We got places that we need help on. Serve the church. Meet the needs of the church. Oh, what are those needs? Pray tell. Let me, let me tell you. I'll give you one big one. We need teachers and helpers in kids' ministry. Both men and women. 20% of our church consists of kids. That's the second largest demographic. Those of you who are nerds, there are some figures. Okay? That's the second largest demographic in our church. 20% of our kids, 20% of our people need to be discipled. Need people to come alongside of mom and dad as mom and dad disciple and develop their kids for the glory of God. 
Some of you have asked, man, I just, I mean, I just want my teaching chops to be shown. Like I know some theology. I know some, go test it with six-year-olds. See what happens. Let's, let's see how good you lead Bible study in a room full of six-year-olds. All right? I get it. I've done it. Like to the point where I was so embarrassed, I had no idea what to do. I just sat down and let the kids climb me because that seemed to work. All right? Serve. Serve the church. Serve to strengthen the church. It's not merely because there's a need, although there is, but behind it is we're strengthening the church. That's not childcare. Strengthen the church. Here's what I will close with. The spiritual health and identity of the people of God is founded upon the work of God in Christ. I'll say that one more time. The spiritual health and identity of the people of God is founded upon the work of God in Christ. What we believe about the church begins with what we believe about Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for this opportunity, uh, man, to, 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 to have gathered, uh, man, to worship you through your preached word. God, my, my simple prayer is that you, Holy Spirit, would, uh, man, would, would, similar to what I said earlier, that, that you would take what lands on ears and, man, implant that into hearts. That hearts would not just be challenged, uh, that hearts would not just be comforted, but that hearts would also be convicted. God, in, in conviction, not only uh, should repentance follow, but, but in conviction, we recognize that your grace is our only hope. And so God, may we be uh, courageous enough to approach you and to confront that which you have convicted us of. God, may we be a church that is founded upon Jesus, not a building, but that we would be founded upon Jesus, connected through Jesus, and as we are rejected like him, we would be reminded that we cannot be shamed because Christ bore that shame in our place and that that would not keep us from preaching boldly and courageously the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we go into a time of uh, offering, this is where we give you, as we've given you our hearts, this is where we give you our stuff that we uh, would not be uh, controlled by the things we think we have control over, but that we would actually open our hands and give freely, generously, faithfully, uh, and cheerfully for the, for the purposes of expanding your gospel in our city and community uh, and for the purpose of demonstrating your work, not just for us, but in us and through us. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.